Hello and welcome to the Common Good Podcast, the podcast that showcases the very best of Glasgow Caledonian University and how the institution, its staff and its research benefits people and communities, both at home and overseas. My name is Craig Telfer and I am delighted to welcome back Dr. Christopher Hand, a lecturer in psychology at the university, to the podcast. Chris, great to see you again. Thanks very much for having me back. No, I thought the last time was very interesting and I think now we've had four months of being in lockdown, I think this is a good opportunity to, to revisit some of the stuff we were talking about and perhaps look to the future as to how things will be once we move out of the lockdown. But just ask you, Chris, how have things been over the last four months? How have things been at home? How have things been at work? We've been really quite lucky. Um, I mean, we, we feel really grateful for the fact that we've stayed quite healthy within our household. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, up until recently, the weather was amazing. Um, so it was great <laughs> to be able to get out pretty much every day. I mean, I've got um, at least 20 months now. Um, he was a lot smaller when lockdown started, obviously. Um, but yeah, looking after him was was quite challenging. But he went back to nursery recently. So yeah, it's, you're right. I mean, things are things are starting to change now, and it's a bit like having to to, to adapt to a new thing yeah. all over again. You know, lockdown was one thing, um, but in some ways for us, it was quite straightforward. You know, you were you were locked down, and that was it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, whereas now that things are starting to open up a wee bit more, you've maybe got a few more decisions to make. Um, you maybe have to actually make a wee bit more compromise than you had to do because mm-hmm. during lockdown it was easy; you were just locked down. Mm-hmm. Um, and for us, it was either working or childcare. There yeah. was nothing else to do really. Um, whereas now you've you've kind of maybe got a wee bit more flexibility. But no, no, we've been really lucky. You know, us and and you know most people we know have have actually stayed okay. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we're just really, really grateful for that. Good, good. Pleased to hear that, Chris. So as I said at the start, we'll break this podcast into two parts. We'll look back over the last four months since we went into lockdown, and then we'll look to the future. So the first thing I want to talk about there, you've touched on it there. Um, we've seen people stuck indoors for long periods of time, stuck like families stuck on top of one another for long periods. And we've also seen people who are perhaps lonely people who have been isolated how will people be feeling the last couple of weeks have, have in some ways maybe been the most challenging you know I've, as things start to open up um because you've now got people who have maybe felt isolated and felt lonely but also maybe don't feel 100 percent comfortable going back out into the world you know yeah. going into shops or into bars or restaurants or, or you know the fact that there's more people around on the street um you know that that might be a wee bit overwhelming for people so I guess, you know, that's that's one of the big challenges um, is, is, is trying to support people um, into sort of coming back out. Um, and, and, you know, particularly if, it, if it's people who have maybe been really, really isolated, um, supporting them to come back out in a way that they feel safe to do so. Um, because I guess that's, that's where there's a kind of real double-edged sword, doesn't it? You know, a lot of people who have maybe had to have taken extra steps they're not any less vulnerable than they were during lockdown. But yet now there's maybe a bit more pressure on them to sort of come out and and, and interact with the world. So I think, you know, I think it's going to be quite challenging. Um, You know, there'll be a lot of people, particularly younger people, that are just raring to go and desperate Mm. to get back out there. Um, I know there was some data published recently that said, you know, age 16 to 24 year olds in particular are just raring to go. You know, they, they don't feel as vulnerable. Um, they, they've been kind of switched on and following the news and, and kind of there's that slightly dangerous mentality that even if they get it, they're likely to survive. 
but of course we know that you know it's not just about you becoming infected it's about you passing that infection on to other people mm-hmm. so it's yeah it's a it's a really really crucial time and it's it's going to be really hard for a lot of people i think because it is that that balancing act between you know i want to be more social i want to be able to get back out and do the things that i used to enjoy while at the same time being aware that there's still you know there's still a risk of infection and even when you do go back out into the world, the world works in a different way. Yeah. You know, it's, you know, even going back to your local pub, things will have changed. You know, your local cafe, your local shops, you know, they're, they're working to a different set of standards now. And, and that experience will be very different for a lot of people. You mentioned support there, Chris. What levels of support do we have in place to help people who have been isolating? I think that kind of that's a little bit up in the air. I mean, I guess it's still a lot of the support services that were there. I mean, so there's some absolutely brilliant online resources like Breathing Space uh, and the Samaritans um, and, and various other sort of mental health support charities. There's also still, you know, your GP um, and, and, and associated services like through the NHS. So I guess people that have concerns around those types of things can still make use of those services. But, you know, this is maybe the bit that there's maybe been a slightly less preparation for because understandably the kind of resources have gone to supporting people during lockdown. Um, we're now at this kind of transitional phase and it will be interesting to see kind of what, what emerges. But yeah, I mean, the really, really great services, you know, if, if students are listening to this, you know, GCU students can use Nightline as well um, because understandably, you know, this is a really challenging challenging period for the sort of anyone involved in education because we've not really had to deal with anything like this before so that staff and students you know um services like breathing space or nightline are, are absolutely invaluable are there likely to be any long-term psychological impacts that the lockdown could have had absolutely uh i mean there's there's some research sort of starting to come out um around about now through sort of good quality peer-reviewed uh, journals um, a lot of that's coming from Europe because they are slightly further ahead of us um, in time. Um, so, you know, there's been studies done in Spain and Italy um, looking at the, the effect on things like mood and mental health and anxiety. And we've got some UK data coming through from, from work that's actually been done at GCU. Uh, I'm involved in a project. We're just writing up our results at the moment. Um, I think a lot of it will depend on what happened to people during lockdown. So what we are seeing in our data is that um, people whose circumstances changed the most unsurprisingly kind of experienced the biggest sort of consequences. So particularly people whose sort of working situation changed quite dramatically, um, that had a big impact on their well-being. And I think a lot of that kind of still is up in the air. I don't think we'll really see the real true cost of that until the sort of furlough scheme comes to a total stop. Um, but I think it's reasonable to, to suggest that we'll probably be seeing effects of this for months and years to come. I mean, we, we kind of know that from the sort of trauma literature. And if we want to think about lockdown and, and COVID as, as being a traumatic event, you know, often the, the negative consequences of that don't come for a little while down the line. There's sometimes a sort of dormancy period. And then these things can raise up, you know, even six months to a year later. Um, so, yeah, it, I think certainly from a, a kind of public health and, and a public well-being perspective, it's really important that we don't lose sight of the kind of mental health side of things because you know it's maybe being portrayed as you know we're getting back out into the world and things are more positive but you know that the consequences of this could be really long lasting i think it's it's fair to, to say as well that 
a lot of people might have had a really good lockdown experience. You know, they might have um, sort of reset some some lifestyle behaviours. They might have been more physically active. Their diet might have improved. They might be sleeping a wee bit better. Um, you know, these might have been people who daily life was actually really, really stressful for them to begin with because of having to interact with people or, you know, they, they, they maybe had circumstances that made the old normal, you know, really problematic. So again, there, there will be a lot of people for whom coming out of lockdown is actually really kind of challenging. They might have got very comfortable with their, their lockdown life. And asking people to give that up could be quite hard. Do you think we have lost sight of the mental health impact that lockdown will have had? Um, I mean, I think some of the decisions around what has been eased and, and what has been sort of um, restrained has been from a mental health perspective um, and, and from a sort of socialisation perspective. Whether that's right or wrong and, and you know, factoring in the economic thing is, is, is difficult for me to say. I mean, I'm, I'm slightly biased, obviously, coming from a psychological background, and I do think potentially the, the, the mental health side of thing has been um, has been sidelined ever so slightly. And that, that's really unfortunate because I think that the mental um, the mental aspects are, are possibly going to be with us for just as long as the physical consequences. You know, they might develop a very, very effect, effective vaccine for COVID, but you can't vaccinate, you know, for poor mental health. So, you know, we, we could be dealing with the mental health consequences either directly or indirectly for a long, long time. And I think we'll especially see that if there's a lot of closures to public services or mass unemployment or an economic depression, because we know historically when those things have happened, it tends to be associated with really problematic mental health. Um, and, you know, we, we've seen some really, really scary statistics about what the, the last sort of decade or so of austerity, economic austerity in the UK has been associated with a really, a really problematic rise in, in mental health disorder. So I guess you know, strategically, um, that, that's something that can't be diminished. You know, we really need to think about that at a society level. Um, and, and we as psychologists, we've been having a lot of conversations about that. Um, actually, a lot of them are, are around starting with protecting the people that have been on the front line. Um, you know, um, key workers, not just in the NHS, but, you know, people that have been in essential services like the police service, postal service, um, refuse and recycling. You know, th th those are people that have had to go out and work. And, and you know, th that well have taken a toll on a lot of people. That's a lot of stuff I'd never considered before, Chris. That's actually quite scary. Should we be worried about this? Um, yeah, I mean, I think we can do a lot just in our day-to-day -day lives, just looking out for people, just keeping an eye on people. And, and you know, if you're concerned, maybe try and do something about it, starting with, with those that are, are sort of neatest and dearest. And I think at, at sort of sector level, I mean, NHS Scotland in particular are, are really good for, for sort of acknowledging the, the relationship between mental health and physical health. So, I, I mean, I think certainly in, in Scotland, we're in a reasonably strong position to cope with that. Um, and there has been a lot of focus in, in sort of Scottish organisations, you know, particularly through recent men's mental health initiatives, particularly, you know, acknowledging the risk of suicide in men and, and stuff like that. So... I think we are maybe a bit more open about mental health than, than in other places. Um, and I think that even pre-COVID, there was, there was much more openness about mental health um, and, and there was a greater recognition um, that, you know, we can't just focus on physical well-being. We need to kind of look at both things together. So I think 
it, it has to be a, a real focus, um, and it's something that's, that's yeah, sadly, it's going to be with us for a long time. But we, you know, we, we we've got a lot of, of things in place already to help us deal with that, and you know, there's things that can be modified, expanded, adapted. So yeah, I think there's there's a good knowledge base and there's a good skills base. Um, I know our um, our counselling psychology uh, doctoral students, for example, I know they are doing great work around supporting each other and, and supporting the broader community. So yeah, we're we're very proud of what our students are doing. Good, that's something I'm pleased to hear. That's very reassuring. But Chris, I want to focus on some of the, the psychological aspects of lockdown. Now, around May and June, there was a point where it looked as though there was no end in sight. There was no finishing line, as it were, when lockdown would be easing. How difficult can it be to stay focused and follow the rules and keep physically distancing from your friends and family during the whole thing? Yeah, I mean, I think that was probably one of the biggest challenges for people was was that idea of staying away from from loved ones. And you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the brain's a wonderful thing, but it can't work to 100% capacity every single you know moment of every day. There are small lapses we switch off. And also just that, that idea of sort of having to consciously monitor everything you're doing is, is absolutely exhausting. Mm-hmm. I mean, you'll know yourself from, from being in sort of lengthy Zoom calls or, or these kind of things. It's really, really taxing. So to, to have to do that in every sort of aspect of your life, be constantly monitoring, not be able to use, you know, little routines um, that you, you've built up a lifetime of, of almost going into autopilot with. Having to having to sort of override those is just absolutely knackering. I, I spoke to a couple of people uh, from the media earlier on, and it was around about, as you said, around about that late May, early June, like the kind of late May bank holiday time, when it looked as if more people were starting to to flirt with with rule breaking. Um, and I think that that was a really interesting point because I think a lot of people had just reached complete exhaustion. Um, and I think we're, we're maybe kind of coming to that point a little bit again because rules are changing. Um, so again, you, the rules that you'd learned over the last sort of couple of months are starting to shift. So again, we're having to, to adapt to a, a very different or a slightly different um, set of circumstances. So again, yeah, it becomes really tiring again. You know, it's it's learning everything again. The, the fact that there is, there is differences from situation to situation is difficult. So for instance, not every restaurant, not every bar, not every hotel, not every office is going to have identical guidelines and identical systems. So again, that's going to be really, really taxing. You know, um, the, the idea of particularly going back to things like bars and restaurants, it will be like the first time every time you do it because you'll have to learn the rules, the process, the etiquette, you know, all the things that we normally just kind of switch on to autopilot for. I'm in a restaurant, I do X, Y, Z. You know, we were not able to do that. I think one thing as well that was that was reasonably reasonably obvious, and I think a lot of people would admit to, um, was that if they did break the guidelines, it tended to be, you know, in situations with close friends and family. You know, it wasn't you know standing deliberately standing right up next to someone in a shop or anything like that. It maybe was almost like a compromise. I know I'm not really meant to see my granny, but I went to her garden and we sat at the far end. So a lot of people were just a lot of people were self-justifying breaking the rules. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I used a phrase earlier on, which was micro cheating. Um, so you know, <laughs> it, it, it wasn't organising a rave for three thousand folk, or you know, you you weren't necessarily 
all, you know, booking a cottage with a hot tub or, you know, going down to the beach with 20 or 30 of your mates. <laughs> but you maybe went round your aunties for a cup of tea or something. Um, but, you know, you, you didn't share the biscuits or that kind of thing, you know. So there is that way of kind of, you know, you know you've done something that to the letter of the regulations you probably weren't meant to do, but you um, you, you maybe did flaunt that some of the guidelines or there was maybe a bit of selective interpretation. Just, sorry, just, just a, a question just, just on that. I know that there was a lot of outrage about Dominic Cummings' behaviour during the lockdown. I know that, that what he did in terms of driving... 300-odd miles with compromised eyesight is, I can't imagine a lot of people did that. But do you think a lot of the people were, there was a certain degree of outrage towards him, but a lot of it was directed at him by people who perhaps had bent the rules slightly themselves already? I think it was the, the, I think there were two main reasons that it was seen as so outrageous. Um, One is that we we do tend to expect better um, and, and people in those kind of positions to hold themselves to a higher standard. Of course. Um, I think the fact that there had been some notable cases prior to that where individuals had maybe shown a bit more accountability. So I'm thinking of Dr. Calderwood made a mistake, broke a, a, a guideline, but put their hands up and said, I'm, I'm sorry, I should not have done that. Um, I think that was that was one of the reasons that there was such outrage was that there, there wasn't that kind of admission or admission of error of or, or even of misjudgment you know it, it was it was almost that that way of finding any way possible to justify what had been done um, and I, I do think you know whether it's hypocrisy or not I do think we tend to hold people in those kind of positions to a higher standard so whether it's hypocritical or not that's what happens there was also the fact that you know a huge number of people um really, really rigidly stuck to the guidelines, you know, and, and didn't do anything. That, that It wasn't even so much that they didn't do anything, it was that they didn't even attempt to put their interpretation onto these guidelines. They mm-hmm. took them as, you know, they took them as sacrosanct. And, and I think that's where a lot of people got really, really upset, was because it was never really advertised as being something open to interpretation. And then you get someone coming along and saying, well, this is how I interpreted it. So then you've got people saying, well, I, no one told me I could interpret it. Yeah. I could have interpreted it differently. And I think that that really stung a lot of people who maybe had missed out on you know, seeing newborn children or dying relatives or, or individuals who they knew were having a really tough time. And I think one of the reasons it was so painful for so many people was not everyone had the opportunity to to be able to interpret the rules in that way you know not everyone's parents property has the facilities to allow a visit like that not everyone kind of has the the resources to be able to do things like that um and i think that was why it was such a sore one for so many people because whether or not it is possible to have interpreted the rules in the way that that those individuals interpreted the rules is one thing but then having the resources to actually be able to do that is, is another. And for, I think it's safe to say for the majority of people in the country, being able to interpret the rules in that way was just never an option. So I think a lot of people saw it more as an abuse of privilege mm-hmm. rather than an abuse of power, if that makes sense. But yeah, I think that, that was a sore one. And I think that 
you know, hearing hearing anecdotal evidence, particularly from police officers um, in in England in particular, that had a massive impact on on people's sort of willingness to stick absolutely rigidly to the guidance. Mm-hmm. You know, there was there were a lot of anecdotal stories coming out from police officers saying loads of the people who we've confronted have said, well, if it's okay for them, it's okay for us. So I think that that had a big big impact, not just on the national mood. But also on you know how stringently I think people stuck to the guidelines, or you know kind of we sort of half jokingly talked earlier on about I'll go and see my granny, but I'll do X and Y, mm-hmm. and it'll be okay. It wasn't so much that people started breaking rules; it was that people there maybe took the opportunity to say, "Well, do you know what? I'm going to put my wee twist mm-hmm. on this, or I'm I'm going to look for loopholes now that I know I'm allowed to," kind mm-hmm. of thing. But yeah, that that was a sore one. Um, and I think that that will be talked about for a long, long time to come. Chris, that's led quite nicely on to my next question, because during lockdown, there were people shaming others online for not adhering to the guidelines. You would see pictures on social media of gatherings, uh, people not distancing. So it's a, kind of two questions here. What's the motivation behind shaming these people online? And two, what are the effects this can have on the people who have been shamed? I think the the, the shamers, you know, the people that were were posting and sharing this kind of stuff, probably a lot of them just felt justifiably outraged. You know, um, they themselves had maybe made a lot of sacrifices. They were maybe angry. And, you know, there is that kind of, um, you know, you're almost looking for, like, vindication about how angry you feel. You know, you want other people to agree with you that, you know, your interpretation of what they're doing is, is sort of shared by other people. Why is that? Um, I think particularly the COVID thing just shows how uncertain life can be. Um, And, you know, you search for a wee bit of certainty. So, you know, getting reassurance from other people, whether that's likes or shares or comments, you know, it kind of just gives you that wee kind of tiny pat on the back that says you're right. You know, what you are thinking and how you are feeling is okay. Um, and I think you, you see that with a lot of social media stuff. It's not just the, the shaming stuff. It's about vindication and validation and, and reassurance and, 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 you know, that wee virtual pat in the back. Um, so I think there was a lot of that. Um, and again, you know, there would be some people that, that actually thought, you know, I'm, I'm going to do something good here by, by showing people an example of what is wrong. Um, so that there probably were some people who, were, who weren't so much doing it to, you know, get lots of likes and, and get lots of traction on, on social media. Um, you know, they maybe just thought, I, I will I will share this. I will alert people to the fact that there's, there's an issue here. So, you know, that there'd be a lot of mixed motivations. But, yeah, some people, I think we, 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 we saw a lot of, of, of things on social media where it was, um, it was actually used kind of unfairly against sort of specific marginalised groups. So, you know, there, there were some things posted on social media uh, that, that gathered a lot of attention, a lot of shares, a lot of retweets and stuff like that, um, that was supposed to be COVID stuff. But, you know, it was outdated media. It was stuff that had maybe happened a year or two ago and it had been kind of edited and tweaked and, and rebadged and, and posted out as, you know, illicit gatherings or, you know, look how these people are behaving in my street tonight when it was actually, you know, a photo from two summers ago or something. Yeah. So there was a little bit of that kind of, Quite, quite devious and quite dangerous sort of harassment of, of marginalised groups. You know, there, w- there was quite quite a lot of that around residents of Govan Hill um, about, you know, people not necessarily um, 
following social uh, social uh, distancing guidelines and, and COVID and public health guidelines. Some of that was maybe from a political angle uh, because of its connection with the Scottish National Party uh, or to do with immigration status or to do with um, racial or ethnicity or social groups. Um, so yeah, there, there was a little bit of deviousness with some of the so-called shaming. Um, it was it was sort of targeted harassment. But yeah, why why do people do it? I mean, it's 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 variable. Um, but you know, there there are a small number of people that are that are just trying to do it to you know show people what is not okay. Um, and you know, for no other reason than they they want people to do better and they want the world to be a bit better. But yeah, unfortunately, there were a lot of people that were, were using this as an opportunity to kind of put the boot in, you know, whether that was a political agenda or, or some other kind of agenda. So what are the effects on the people who have been shamed then? Yeah, that's that's a hard one. Um, so there, there is that kind of like rebelling against authority thing. You know, if you, if you see, you know, someone like, I can't remember which police service it was in England, but one of them was using drone footage. Ah, of yeah, I remember that. People out walking on the moors, and they were kind of using it almost as like a like a, a policy kind of thing and, and like a strategy to change behaviour. But what that kind of does is it kind of taps into that, that ambiguity and, and people think, well, are they really doing anything wrong? Maybe mm. I would take my dog for a walk on the moors or, you know, maybe I would go for a cycle away out in the middle of nowhere. Because there is that uncertainty, thinking, well, well, what harm are you doing? Um, and you know, with, without being an epidemiologist or without being a, a virologist, you know, it's it's maybe hard to understand what the consequences of that are. Um, so it's it's a really risky strategy to do that um, because you know it might actually make people think, no, they're not actually doing anything wrong there. Mm-hmm. We're fine, good on them. Or you know, there is there is maybe the, the between groups thing where if they think it's you know like us versus the man kind of thing. Right. Well, if they've told me to do that, I'm going to do something opposite. And I think that's that's where the you know the idea of trying to take the politics out of it, particularly at the Scottish level, was quite important. You know, um, you you had you know ministers and, and 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 members of the Scottish Parliament from all sides kind of putting party politics to the side a little bit, um, and and just kind of making it more of a national thing, because again, that could have a big impact. You know, if 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 you perceive that as being, say, a Labour or a Conservative or a Green Party message or an SNP message, and that doesn't align with your politics, then you might have a tendency to push back a little bit more. So the, the, the shaming thing's dangerous because, you know, if you identify with the people who are being shamed, then you might be inclined to kind of either support them or, or behave like them in future. So whether that's old versus young or political versus, you know, different type of politics or some other some other distinction, then that, that becomes a bit of a problem. There is there is also the, the, the you know, social media shaming can be absolutely life destroying, um, you know, because th- there is always possibility that you as the shamer have got it wrong. And, you know, the, the situation was actually a wee bit different from what you mm-hmm. thought it was. So, you know, actually shaming people isn't, isn't a nice thing to do. It's not always an effective thing to do. Um, you know, one of the few cases where where shaming has sort of worked as a tactic has been around drink driving, mm-hmm. um, but it, it doesn't really work in, in other kind of um, change domains. So it's it's a it's potentially a bit pointless. It could actually be counterproductive, and you know you could actually kind of ruin someone's life. Um, you know they could lose their job. It could have consequences for their friends and family. So, and, and there is always the possibility that you're in the wrong. There is also the thing, you know, that there is actually legal 
um, considerations as well about whether or not you have permission to share someone's image or, or videos of them or, and, and them and the other people who are in who are in shot at the time. So, you know, if, if anyone's listening to this and thinking about being an online chamber, I'd tread very lightly, to be honest, really <laughs> lightly. You know, we, we'll see, I mean, again, slightly flippantly, we, we now see Rebecca Vardy and uh, Colleen Rooney in court. Yeah. And kind of over over online shaming. Um, yeah. I know it's about more than that, but it touches on the online shaming thing. And I mean, re- regardless of where you stand on that, about whether you see it as, as frivolous or not, I mean, that, that person has, has legitimately presented that, you know, they've been harassed. Um, it's had a, an effect on their family. Um, so, you know, I think we have to think really, really carefully if we were going to go down that road. So if that's the main takeaway from this podcast, think twice before you shame people online. Or in real life. <laughs> you know, just, yeah. yeah, it's not, it's not nice. Sticking with social media, Chris, this is perhaps the thing I'm most interested to talk to you about, and and that's the the spread of disinformation about the coronavirus. There was a a number of conspiracy theories about COVID-19. Some of them, it's a man-made virus designed to control the population, or there was a link between the coronavirus and 5G mobile networks. I mean, even Eamon Holmes was on this morning uh, chipping in on this. A couple, a number of questions about this, Chris. But the first one is: Why are people motivated to start and share conspiracy theories? Where does that come from? Some conspiracy theories are actually kind of started um, on purpose uh, because people know that they'll take hold. So you know, if if people want to push a certain agenda, they might actually publish the theory themselves because they know it will get traction. So, for instance, you know, if if you were anti a certain product you might start a conspiracy theory about that product because you know it will take hold and you know a certain proportion of the population will buy into it so you know there is there is that idea of kind of using people's willingness to believe in conspiracy as a weapon against them or against a government or against a a product or, or service so yeah i mean conspiracies can can actually be weaponized in that way so so you know there is a kind of sometimes a malicious intent to start them um, more generally, we, we need to make sense of the world. Um, we don't like it when things don't make sense. So when things are really complicated and things are unknown, um, a conspiracy actually kind of helps people to kind of legitimise what's going on. Um, and it helps people kind of organise these sometimes very, very complicated and uh, ambiguous events. Um, there's, there's been some quite good conspiracy theory research, believe it or not, you know, and psychologists will research everything. Um, and yeah, conspiracy theories are, are, are no exceptions to that. Um, I had a, a project student at GCU last year who did their undergraduate thesis on conspiracy theory. And, and one of the things that they found was that it was it's, it's quite closely related to your, your own personality about whether or not you're going to buy into a conspiracy theory. So one of the reasons that people do buy into them is the fact that in their own lives, they may have conspired to do something. You know, they may have tried to, you know, bend a rule or force something through in a kind of working capacity or something in a a slightly devious or distrustful way. So the fact that many of us have done that makes it actually quite easy to believe that other people would do that, you know, even on a kind of global scale. So there is that kind of thing of, hmm, if I'm capable of doing something like that, albeit on a small scale, what are you know governments and corporations capable of? It also ties in um, to, to things like people's trust in authority. Um, so people who don't really trust 
um, the powers that be also tend to be the ones that believe most strongly in, in uh, conspiracy theories. Um, and, and other personality dimensions like narcissism, um, you know, people who are, are, are quite high in narcissism also tend to, to believe quite strongly in conspiracy theories. Wow. People that vary in sort of their openness to experience, you know, that also influences um, likelihood of believing in conspiracy theories. So, um, yeah, I mean, people people distrust authority, and that's that's fine, you know, you know, but that can often manifest itself in, in these quite harmful ways, you know. And we've we've seen that around things like anti-vaccination, global warming, you know, mm-hmm. the, these are these are places where where conspiracy theories um, crop up most strongly. So yeah, it's. That I've noticed recently there's been a lot of public information and advertising around, you know, don't trust everything you see. Um, but then, you know, for a lot of people, the fact that you've been told not to trust it suggests that there's something wrong. <laughs> um, so it's, it's that horrible, horrible thing where you have to respect confidentiality. You have to respect things like state secrets and information. And, you know, the fact that there naturally exists information that we can't have kind of just leaves that ambiguity that there might be some sort of conspiracy. But, you know, one would hope that there, there aren't any. But, you know, the fact that we we cannot have every single piece of information and understand 100% what is going on just leaves that little margin for people to, to identify a possible conspiracy. And then, you know, lots of individual differences kick in about whether or not we believe it. It's interesting that that student research project uh, who I worked with, or the student whose research I worked with last year, we looked at um, conspiracies about 9-11 and about the, the London 7-7 bombings. Wow. And we found that people, it's not just that they believe in conspiracy, they can actually strongly um, sort of believe in contrasting conspiracies. Um, so we asked people about, you know, potential conspiracies around 9-11, and there were some that just couldn't go together. You know. It, you know, it wouldn't have, uh, you know, it was, it was essentially like one's blaming uh, Israel, blaming the US government, and one's blaming Al Qaeda. Um, <laughs> and we actually saw really quite strong correlations that people would just believe in conspiracy, you know, even, yeah. even when the two ideas were impossible to go together. The people that agreed that it was, you know, it was Israeli punishment for US support of oil fields in the Middle East were the same people that were saying it was. Uh, an Al-Qaeda anti-Zionist uh, or anti-Semitic statement. Um, so it just seems to be that people people want to believe in conspiracy and, and they almost kind of don't care what the conspiracy is. So it's, it's, it's problematic, particularly in, in the sort of age of information and, and social media, because they spread a lot more quickly. I mean, conspiracy theories aren't new. You know, they're, they're not new to coronavirus. They're not new to 5G. You know, you, how far do you want to go back? You know, Archduke Ferdinand, a lot of people had conspiracies about that at the start of the First World War. Um, Kennedy assassination, you know, that's been rumbling on for years and years and years and years. Princess Diana, you know, there was a huge amount of conspiracy about that. Jeffrey Epstein. Yeah. Although, well, we'll see. Uh, <laughs> I mean, we might be here in a couple of weeks talking about someone else in a similar way. So We're able to have a bit of a laugh about this, Chris, because... It- is quite ridiculous some of the stuff we're talking about but it can be dangerous the way it manifests itself we've mentioned the 5g conspiracies where some masts have actually been set on fire why are some people so entrenched in their beliefs that they'll be so willing to to act on them with, with violence and destruction 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is this is one of the problems and the biggest challenges around conspiracy theory is because we we've seen too many very sad examples of of when it's gone, you know, to, to that kind of kind of um, level. And obviously, with the, the destruction of the five G masks and things, you know, that's that's a risk to public safety and public health and and all these things. I think part of the problem is a lot of the information around these conspiracies can be so convincingly shared. Um, and it can be presented in such a professional, authoritative way. Um, you know, it's it's not you know someone ranting and raving on a street corner. You know, it looks slick. Yeah. Um, the fact that it comes via computer probably just gives a lot of legitimacy to it. Um, you know, if it's presented in a, a in a professional way, which you know can, can be reasonably easily done with with digital editing and, and digital technologies, I think that that can provide really compelling compelling evidence um, or supposedly compelling evidence for people to, to act on them. Um, I think the fact that, that, that you know, the, the best conspiracies, if you want to think of them that way, are the ones that touch on, you know, the, the most sort of emotional topics. So, you know, whether that's, you know, children's health through vaccination or a public health through coronavirus or, you know, a, a sort of a national figurehead like a, a Kennedy or a Monroe um, or whether it's you know something of people in, in tremendous power like a, a Trump or an Epstein, I think that's where you know it, th- th- those people in those situations arise a lot of passion and a lot of emotion in people, um, and when you couple that with with a sort of convincingly and, and compellingly presented conspiracy theory um, by you know a, maybe a charismatic author or presenter. You know that's when we start to get really, really big problems. And I mean, all it takes is one, you know, potentially vulnerable individual to get hold of that, uh, and all of a sudden you've got something like a mass shooting, or you've got a five G mask on fire, or you've got you know children not being vaccinated, um, and therefore you know being outbreaks of measles and, and things like that, which potentially affects you know um, hundreds and thousands and you know millions of of, of people worldwide. Um, that's that's when that becomes really really problematic, um, and it's 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 difficult because you know often the people that are believing in these things and acting on them are the ones that are going to be the hardest to convince that there isn't a conspiracy, or you know you're going to have to use information to change their mind. But how do you convince them to trust the source of the information? Um, there's a good example around the flat Earth Society. Um, so. Um, one of the people that's very, very high up in the, the Flat Earth Society is, is ardent about the need to address climate change. Now, the data that they often present comes from NASA. Um, so the Flat Earthers are on <laughs> one hand, or this particular Flat Earther is on one hand saying, you can't trust NASA. They fake all this stuff about the Earth not being flat. But at the same time, they're using NASA data and NASA information about climate change. So again, this ties in with the fact that you know people can sometimes hold these um, incompatible beliefs, even even when it's something really close to them and, and that they're really passionate about. So it's it, that's going to be one of the, the, the big challenges facing sort of particularly social media companies is is you know targeting this false information um, and and you know targeting it particularly as a way to maybe instigate you know either corporate sabotage or you know, medical sabotage or um, sort of um, political or racial or uh, gendered or religious hatred, targeted harassment. 
we'll look to the future now. And now we're easing lockdown restrictions. One of the things, and it ties in with conspiracy theories and, and anti-authoritarianism, is wearing of masks. There have been a lot of scenes of violence, particularly in the United States, where people have been turned away from shops where they don't have a mask. Why would people object to wear a mask? Again, it, it kind of ties in with the conspiracy thing, and uh, a lot of it comes from, from not trusting authority um, and, and not trusting whoever is in charge at your kind of local level. Um, people, people don't like to feel out of control. Um, so, you know, if there's this perception that, that control over what to do with your body or control over how your life, live your life has been taken away from you, then people kind of, some people rebel against that. Um, and again, it, it kind of maybe touches on some of those personality characteristics earlier on, maybe the narcissism, um, maybe, uh, maybe a little bit of everyday psychoticism or psychopathy. I think a, a, a lot of it comes from, from you know, this, this perception that wearing of a mask is somehow a political statement or it's, it is some way to control, you know, control you as an individual. Um, so, you know, people that have, have got those kind of ideologies about personal freedoms um, will, will react really, really strongly against that. Um, you're right. I mean, there's been a lot, particularly in, um, in the United States, we've, we've seen it cropping up in the UK and in Australia, particularly in Sydney. Um, there's been some really quite notable cases of, of anti-maskers. But yeah, again, the, the, this is where there's maybe been a little bit of misinformation. Um, you know, people talking about the risk, uh, the risk to your health because you're you're potentially impairing your breathing, um, and you know there's been a lot of kind of um, retaliation and, and response to that by people saying, well, you know, a surgeon who's operating on you will wear a mask, and they can operate, literally, they can operate um, perfectly well um, with with no you know no negative consequences, hopefully. Um, but yeah, I think one of the reasons it's it's maybe um, it's maybe so problematic is because there were initially kind of contrasting positions about whether it was um, yeah. essential to wear a mask or not. Um, and I think, again, that, that's maybe just where the, the kind of language of these communications comes into it, because for a, for a number of reasons, people maybe didn't recommend masks at the start. That was maybe to, to help with the, the shortfall of PPE so that you didn't have the public maybe buying and misusing you know, PPE. Um, so, you know, some of that communication may well have been about protecting supply lines. Um, and also just nature by its research can be, sorry, research by its nature can be a little bit, you know, um, contradictory. So, you know, different researchers using different methods and models um, will have found different, you know, different levels of support for whether or not the mask is an effective strategy. Um, so the fact that, you know, people more than ever have got access to the scientific research and the data, you know, if, if people align themselves with one group of researchers over another, um, you know, that, that might be enough to convince them. So uh, it's, it's that kind of complicated thing of personal beliefs, some scientific evidence all kind of coming together. But I mean, one thing I would, I would always say about the masks is the mask is, is not a political thing necessarily. Um, you know, the, the, there is plenty of, of evidence accessible to outline the pros and cons of wearing a mask. And, you know, I think what it boils down to is, is that line between where do we respect personal freedoms and, you know, the, the ability to choose what you do with your, your public health, but at the same time without risking compromising other people's.
I think it's great that particularly in Scotland, there's been a lot of recognition about the number of people who um, cannot or should not wear a mask um, and the circumstances in which it is not appropriate to wear a mask. So, you know, that, that touches on things like autism and Asperger's, anxiety, people with underlying health conditions, uh, people who rely on lip reading or signing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's really important. Um, and I think it's it's great that particularly in Scotland, there's been a lot of, um, you know, really visible communication about why people might not be wearing masks. Um, and it's not that, you know, that, and this, I suppose, goes back to your thing about online shaming. That's maybe going to be the next thing. People taking pictures of folk not wearing masks or videoing them in a shop not wearing their mask when you don't know if that person relies on lip reading or, you know, due to autistic spectrum disorder or Asperger's or, COPD or any of these kind of things, you know, it may not be appropriate for that person to wear a mask. Um, so yeah, again, you know, let's let's not assume anything about anyone, you know, regardless of whether they are or are not wearing a mask, um, because we know that there are perfectly legitimate reasons that people may not be wearing a mask. Chris, I'd be honest, this is probably my favourite Common Good podcast that we've done so far. This is some of the topics we've touched on are really, really, really interesting. But before you go, I've got one final question. What piece of advice would you have as we ease towards lockdown restrictions being lifted? What piece of advice do you have for the public at large? Keep looking after yourself. Keep looking after the people around you. And if things are hard, things aren't going so well, don't be afraid to ask for help. Brilliant. Chris, that was excellent. Thank you very much for talking to me. Really appreciate your time. No worries. Thanks very much, Craig. All the best. I'd also like to thank everyone for listening to today's episode and I hope you'll join us again soon when we'll be talking to another member of staff from Glasgow Caledonian University. In the meantime, please subscribe to this podcast via Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you're listening to us from. Make sure you give us a five-star rating while you're at it. Until then, I've been Craig Telfer and this has been the Common Good Podcast. Mm -hmm.